Today's scripture comes to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more for them. To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I may win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save someone. I do it all for those, excuse me, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in the blessings. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would Clear our minds of all of the distractions of this world and of this life, Lord. We pray that you would enable us to focus upon the glory of your Son and upon your Word. We pray, Lord God, that by your Holy Spirit, you would teach us your Word, that you would apply it to our lives, and that in the end, you would make us more like Christ. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I once heard it said that joy, that is where real joy comes from, is putting Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. Many of you have probably heard that before. It's not unique. Um, I certainly did not come up with that. But the letters J-O-Y, Jesus, others, and then yourself. And uh, as as common as that that phrase is, uh, it really is true, or at least least it should be true, because we see that taught and written uh, throughout the Bible. Last Sunday, for example, I, I offered an illustration Uh, of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And I reminded you that after Jesus had washed the disciples' feet, he said to them in John chapter 13, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed, that is joyful, are you if you do them. Two chapters later, Jesus says to them, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you. Well, what things is he talking about? Keeping his commandments. These things I have spoken to you that my 
joy, he says, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. So Jesus tells his disciples, Jesus tells us that his joy will be in us and our joy will be full if we keep his commandments. Namely, to love one another just as Christ has loved us. Our joy, Jesus says, if we do that, will be full. It will be bursting, it will be oozing out of us and onto others. In the same way and to the same extent that Christ loved us. Now, if you've been a Christian for any significant amount of time, you probably already know this. You've heard this, you've been taught this at one point in your Christian life. Um, Sometimes we need to be reminded of the old familiar lessons. Because sometimes the old is still good. But there's a question that I'm going to ask you to ponder. And that is this, why does it often not feel that way when we do try to live out what Christ commands? When we do truly try to put God first in everything and then put others' needs before our own and then ourselves at the very end, always putting our needs behind everyone else, why is it that at first it feels great? And we are experiencing real joy because we know that we are pleasing God and we are pleasing others. But after a while, if we're honest with ourselves, it starts to get old. After a while, we start to grow weary of always being last, of always putting others ahead of ourselves, of never being thought of, of never being or feeling appreciated. I want to submit to you that it is because joy is not in the doing, but rather joy is in the knowing and believing. The joy is knowing and believing that when we do this, when we make ourselves the servant of God and others, and when we make ourselves the lowest servant, when we put God first, and when we put everyone else ahead of ourselves, we bring the greatest glory to Christ our Savior. Put a smile on the face of God. But for many of us, if we're honest, for many of us, that simply is not good enough. Because we either don't believe it, there is some doubt in our mind or in our heart whether or not this is really true. We struggle to really believe that putting others first actually glorifies God and will bring us joy, or we simply don't care. In other words, we believe it, that it will please God, that it will glorify God, but we would rather put our needs before the needs of others. 
for the Apostle Paul, it both mattered and he believed it, which is what drove Paul to live the way that he did. The radical life that Paul lived was driven by his understanding of this. You see, Paul was so overwhelmed by God's love for him, by God's amazing grace and all that Christ was willing to do for him despite all of his sinfulness and all of his wickedness. He was driven to love God and to love others in the way that Christ loved him, sacrificially. And that is what Paul is demonstrating for us here in our passage this morning. Paul is teaching us what servanthood looks like by using himself as an example. Using himself as an example and explaining to the church in Corinth why he lives the way he does, why he does the things that he does, why he behaves as he does. And so he continues in our text in verse 19, and he says this, For though I am free from all, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. So first of all, by beginning with the words, for though I am free. Paul is picking up on the theme that he started really at the beginning of the chapter back in verse 1. If you look there, you'll remember he started with saying, am I not free? Of course, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes. He then goes on to argue that he has the right to eat and to drink whatever he Wants. He has the right to bring along a believing wife if he wanted to. He has the right to demand that the churches supply his needs. He is not bound by the church in Corinth or anything outside of Scripture. Nevertheless, he says in verse 19, For though I am free from all, though he has the freedom to do whatever he wants, within biblical parameters, of course. But though he is free from all, he says, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. It's an amazing statement when you stop and think about it. Paul says, I am free from all in Christ. Yet he uses his freedom... To become a servant to all. Paul truly lived out what he preached and taught. In Galatians 5, after effectively arguing in that book that justification before God is by faith alone, in Christ alone, and because of that, believers have been set free. Believers have been set free from the bondage of sin, death, and Satan, and from the burden of the law, all by faith alone, in Christ alone. He then says in Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. 
Serve one another, Paul says. Don't use your freedom in Christ to serve yourself, to serve your own needs. Rather, use your freedom in Christ to serve others. Because when you use your freedom to serve yourself, when you use your freedom to serve your own needs, to put yourself before others and everyone else second, then you show that you have not actually been set free. You only think that you've been set free, but you're not. This is what Paul means when he said in Romans 6, 16, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves... You are slaves of the one whom you obey. Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. In other words, you are all slaves. We're all slaves. You are either a slave to your own selfish desires, or you are a slave of Christ. Unfortunately for the believer who has been set free from the slavery of sin and death and Satan, we still have this inexplicable desire to return to our own master, to put ourselves willingly back under the slavery of sin and Satan. The slavery of our own sinful passions and our own sinful desires. And so, Paul says, he makes himself a servant of all so that he might win more of them. You see, Paul sees serving as a means to an end. Serving is a means to an end for Paul, and that end being the salvation of people. This is essentially the same advice that Peter gives to believing wives in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and following. There, Peter says this, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word. They may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. In other words, what Peter is saying to believing wives who are married to unbelievers is that they ought to serve and minister to their husbands, strive to be submissive and respectful to them, and God can use that as a means of grace to convict them of their sin and to cause them to realize their need for a Savior. And practically speaking, we know, we know this to be true. We know that people are more likely to listen to you if you are trying to communicate the gospel to them if you have ministered to them first. If you have striven to, to meet their need or to be helpful in some way. Now, this is not to say, I am not saying that street evangelism is not effective, that you should never make an attempt to communicate the gospel to a total stranger. We should always try to communicate the gospel to everybody that we come in contact with, whether we know them or not, whether we only have 30 seconds to have a conversation with them 
or not. But it is to say that if you are the kind of neighbor who never offers to help your neighbor, who never offers to loan him tools that he needs to borrow, if you're the kind of co-worker that your fellow co-workers cannot depend on, that you're not willing to serve them, you're not willing to help them, don't be surprised that when you make an effort to share the gospel with them, they are not going to give you the time of day. Because if that's what Christianity looks like, I don't want anything to do with it. This is how Paul thinks. And so for this reason, he says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. Why? That I might win more of them. He goes on to say in verse 20, to the Jews... I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Now, these two sentences at first may seem redundant. It seems like Paul is saying the same thing, but Paul is actually addressing two different points. In the first sentence where he says, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. Well, first of all, when you stop and think about that sentence, it's kind of an odd thing for Paul to say, right? Since Paul was a Jew. To the Jew I became as a Jew. Wait, Paul, aren't you you Jewish? So what does he mean by that? Well, two things. First, what Paul means is that Paul was willing to identify with and carry out Jewish cultural practices such as clothing and dietary laws in order to win Jews. We know that from places like Romans 14 and Galatians chapter 3 that Paul believed that he was no longer bound by the cultural or dietary laws of the Old Testament. So, for example, in Galatians 3.24, Paul writes, The law was our guardian until, you notice the temporal language, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, that is faith in the Messiah, faith in Christ, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We are no longer under the law, Paul argues. Nevertheless, we do know that Paul would keep the Old Testament law to a certain extent in order to not offend Jews. He would do that. Two examples I can give you are Acts chapter 16, verse 3. There we're told that Paul took Timothy, who was half Jewish and half Greek, and he had him circumcised. This is an apostle who wrote the entire book of Galatians arguing against the law of circumcision. If you're a Gentile, don't bring yourselves under the law of circumcision, but he does that to Timothy because Timothy's half Jewish. He doesn't want Timothy to offend and therefore make it difficult for Paul to communicate with the Jewish community. We also see toward the end of the book of Acts, chapter 21, 
verses 20 and following, that when Paul goes to Jerusalem for the last time before he's arrested, this is what leads to his arrest, he gets there and the disciples who are living in Jerusalem say to him, look, there's all kinds of nasty rumors going around about you, that you're going around and you're preaching against the law of Moses, you're telling people not to circumcise their children. And of course, none of that is true. Paul would say that to Gentiles, but he never told Jews, don't circumcise your children. He certainly never preached against the law of Moses and that none of it was binding on New Testament believers. And so they suggest to him, look, in order to dispel these false accusations, here's what you do. We have four men who are about to uh, come out from underneath a vow. And so we want you to go with them and to offer the, the vow offering in the temple and to pay the price that needs to be paid for them to be done with this vow. To show the people that you still do keep the law to an extent. And Paul was willing to do it. More than likely because it wasn't a sin offering. I seriously doubt Paul would have been willing to present a sin offering knowing that Christ atoned for all of his sins. But this was a vow offering. Something that you do in order to end a vow wasn't related to sin or the atoning of sin in any way. But nonetheless, he does it. And you know the story. Things just go downhill from there pretty quickly. The second thing that is interesting about the first sentence that Paul says in verse 20 is that Paul apparently no longer primarily identifies as Jewish. In his mind, when he says to the Jew, I become as a Jew, he is indicating that he now primarily identifies as Christian and not as Jewish. But when he's around Jewish people, he will act like a Jew. He'll do all the things that Jewish people do, even though he primarily identifies as Christian. However, in the second sentence of verse 20, he then says, To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Here, Paul is likely not just talking about the law of Torah. He's not just talking about the law. He's not just talking about the Mosaic law. He's not just talking about the Pentateuch but very likely is also including the laws of the Mishnah, which was a collection of rabbinic laws that sort of helped to explain and flesh out the Torah. They, were really, they originated really as commentary on the Torah, but they became law by the time of Christ and the Apostle Paul. And so Paul is saying that though he is a Christian and is not really bound by the laws of Mishnah or by the rabbinical law, he is willing to submit to them. In order to remain within the Jewish community and have an opportunity to communicate the gospel to them. One possible example of this is from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. There, Paul goes through this litany of experiences that he has suffered at the hands of Gentiles and Jews because of his faith in the gospel of Christ. And in verse 24, he says this, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 
the 40 lashes less one. The 40 lashes less one. When Paul says the 40 lashes, he doesn't say 40 lashes. He says the 40 lashes less one. Paul is likely referring to a law within the Mishnah, which states that if a Jew is found guilty of committing blasphemy of any kind, that he should be flogged 40 times within the synagogue, minus one. They minus the one just to make sure they don't miscount. They want to be gracious. We're going to flog you 40 times, but we're only going to get to 39 and stop. Just in case we miscounted is what they would do. Certainly the gospel that Paul proclaimed about a crucified Messiah would have been offensive to the Jew and would have caused them to level accusations of blasphemy against Paul. How can you preach a crucified Messiah? Thus, according to the Mishnah, if a Jew was found guilty, he had to be flogged 40 times. So if Paul wanted to be able to freely move in and out of the Jewish communities and be accepted by them and be able to communicate the gospel to them, then he had to be willing, he had to be willing to voluntarily undergo the 40 lashes minus one. And Paul did that five times. This is a testament not only to the toughness of Paul, but to the great love that Paul had for God and for Christ and for the Jewish people. This is how Paul became a servant to them. If this is what I have to do to be able to freely go in and out of the Jewish community, enter the synagogue, share the gospel with my fellow Jews, then Paul gladly stretched out himself and said, let the beatings begin. He then offers a third example in verse 21 of how he is a servant to all. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. So Paul is now, now talking about how he would behave when he was around Gentiles. But he wants to be clear that he didn't live as though he was completely lawless. He didn't engage, he didn't engage in sinful behavior, if that's what the Gentiles were doing. He understood that he was still under the law of Christ. Now, of course, that phrase, the law of Christ, is difficult to understand. There is a lot of debate among scholars as to what Paul means by that. On the one hand, we know that Paul believed and taught that Christians are no longer bound by Old Testament law. We know that. We see that in places like Galatians chapter 3. But on the other hand, we know that Paul does not completely disregard all Old Testament law. We see that, for example, 
In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 2, one of the best examples, there he cites, he actually cites the fifth commandment for children to honor their mother and father and then argues they must do this. They must keep the fifth commandment. So we know that Paul did not believe that we were that New Testament believers were not bound by Old Testament law in any sense. He simply did not believe that. Thus, by being under the law of Christ, Paul means that believers are under Old Testament law. New Testament believers are under Old Testament law insofar as they are understood and applied through the finished work of Christ, through the lens of Christ. That probably doesn't answer all of your questions, but it's a good starting point. You cannot rightly understand the Old Testament unless you first sit at the feet of Christ. Still, he says, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law that I might win those outside the law. In Galatians 2, we see Paul rebuking Peter to his face for being a hypocrite because Peter would eat with the Gentiles and hang around with them and rub elbows with them until believing Jews from Jerusalem would come uh, to Antioch or to wherever Peter was. And then he would distance himself. Oh, I, I I don't know those guys. Put on all the Jewish garb and act very Jewish. And Paul rebuked him for it. He rebuked him for being a hypocrite. The implication, of course, is Paul, if Paul is rebuking Peter for being a hypocrite for doing that, then the implication is that Paul himself did not do that or would not have do that, right? Otherwise, Paul's a hypocrite. So the implication is that Paul would not have done that. When he's with Gentiles, he acts as Gentiles regardless of who might be around. And so he says to the Galatian Christians in Galatians 4.12, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. He says that to the Gentile believers in Galatia. I have become as you are. Right? So Paul was willing to live as a Gentile among Gentiles in order to reach them, which means that he would eat whatever they ate. He would wear what they wore. He would not worry about certain uh, rituals, Jewish rituals, like the ceremonial washing of your hands before you eat. That may have made the Gentile believers feel like they're dirty or there's something wrong with the way that they eat. Paul likely would have just sat down with them and let's just eat. This is what you do. This is what I'm going to do. And I'm not going to do things that might upset you or rub you the wrong way. He wanted to maintain a good relationship with them so that they would listen to him, so that he could sit around the fire with them and talk to them. This is how Paul became a servant to the Gentiles. He then finishes with a fourth illustration. And he says to the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. Once again, I want to remind you that when Paul uses that word in chapters 8 and 9, 
He is not talking about those who are spiritually immature. Because even mature Christians can have personal convictions that may or may not be grounded in Scripture. There's just something that bothers their conscience that they're just not going to do. That doesn't necessarily mean that they are spiritually immature. In some ways, it may be that they're more mature than the rest of us. This wording goes back to chapter 8 where he makes the comparison between the weak and those who eat food offered to idols. That's the comparison he makes. The weak and those who eat foods offered to idols. He doesn't make comparisons between the weak and the strong. He doesn't say that. Or between the weak and the spiritually mature. He doesn't say that. So I want you to understand that when he talks about the weak, he's not talking about Christians that are spiritually immature. And I say that because you should never think that about someone who has a personal conviction about something that maybe can't be found in the Bible. That doesn't mean that they're spiritually mature. Be careful because it may mean that they're more spiritually mature than you are. Because they see something and recognize something that maybe you don't. So we want to extend grace in those areas. However, the word for weak is the Greek word asthenes. And in fact, it can sometimes be applied in the New Testament. It sometimes implies spiritual struggles or sin. Spiritual struggles or sin. For example, in Romans 5, 6, Paul writes this, For while we were weak, same word, while we were weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We all understand that the word weak there is, is about sin, that we were in our sin. So Paul is using the same Greek word there to refer to sin. So what does Paul mean when he says, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. Likely, it has to do with what Paul says toward the end of 2 Corinthians. There in chapter 11, verse 30, Paul says this, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Same Greek word. I will boast of the things that show my weakness. He then goes on in that chapter to talk about the thorn in his flesh. Most of you are familiar with that passage. We don't know what the thorn is. It may have been some physical uh, uh, malady or it may have been um, some spiritual uh, struggle that he had in his own life that he simply could not gain victory over some besetting sin, maybe. And Paul tells us that he prayed to God three times to remove this from him, whether it's a physical disability or whether it's just some besetting sin my goodness maybe it was pride maybe it was cut you know paul was human he did sin and i'm sure he grieved his sins greatly and he prayed three times god just take this away from me and he says that god replied to him in verse 9 of chapter 12 my grace is sufficient for you paul for my power is made perfect in weakness. Same Greek word. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. Same Greek word. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul is not ashamed to admit that he struggles in life. 
He's not ashamed to admit that he struggles with maybe some physical disability that maybe causes him to struggle emotionally with depression or just sorrow or grief. He's not ashamed to admit that he struggles with sin. Paul himself calls himself the chief of sinners. Acknowledges he's not even worthy to be called an apostle. Paul does not feel that he has to put on a, a false persona in front of other people as though he's got it all together because he's the apostle Paul. You know, this is something that a lot of Christians are tempted to do. In fact, this is a very serious temptation for those who are in leadership, pastoral ministry, or any other form of leadership. There is this temptation to make people think, I've got it all together. If you need help with your sins, come talk to me because I don't struggle with sins. If you need help with your marriage, come talk to me because I got the perfect marriage. They think that that'll be helpful and that that'll instill confidence in people to want to seek out their advice, but very oftentimes it has the opposite effect. Why? Because no alcoholic wants to sit in a meeting and seek help from people who have never struggled with alcoholism. Because you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know how difficult this is. So how can you possibly help me? And so, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, rather 2 Corinthians, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. Paul's not afraid to say, I'm a mess. I am a mess. I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So that Paul would not depend on himself and his own strength to solve his own problem. He knew he had to acknowledge, I'm a mess, and that's why I need Christ. And only Christ can help me. And so Paul says to the weak, I will show my weakness so that I might win the weak. He then concludes, verses 22, middle of verse 22 and 23. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings, in its joy. Paul seeks to become a servant to all people and to meet people where they are, to meet people where they are, and he does it all for the sake of the gospel that he might save some. He wants to see people come to Christ. But why does he do it? What motivates him? He says that I might share in its blessings. There's a, there's a personal motivation to it. I want to share in the blessing. I want to share in the joy. 
and the joy of bringing glory to God and seeing people come to know Christ. Paul truly made himself a servant to all people to the point of being willing to voluntarily undergo floggings by the Jews. He didn't have to. He could have said, you know, the Mishnah is not binding on anybody, let alone me. I'm preaching the truth. I'm not going to lay down and let you flog me. But he knew that if he didn't, you'll never be allowed into another synagogue. He was willing to become a servant to all people, even to the point of being flogged by the Jews, in order to experience the joy of bringing glory to God and loving others. In order to have the fullness of joy that Christ promised to his disciples. We could learn a lot from Paul. I think Paul knew that, which is why he wrote in, verse, in chapter 11, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would apply this truth to our lives, that we would be willing to become the lowest of servant to all people, that we would be willing to endure all sufferings for the glory of God and so that we might experience the fullness of joy that Christ promised to his disciples if we would follow his example of being a servant washing the disciples' feet, being willing himself to be flogged and crucified for us. We pray this in Christ's name.